If you open your Bibles to the book of Philippians, uh, this past Thursday we just started a study in the book of Proverbs, so I just want to welcome all of you to, to come out and uh, <clears throat> gain wisdom on Thursday nights. Uh, but this morning we're going to be also begin a book uh, of Philippians, one of the shorter epistles of Paul. All right, so the book of Philippians, uh, many of you know this is a letter written from Paul to the church in Philippi, and I just want to give you a little bit of background so that when we actually read the text, we'll, we'll know the context of it. Uh, in Acts chapter 15, we see that the Holy Spirit himself forbids Paul and Silas to preach in Asia and Bithynia. And while Paul is in Troas, uh, he has a vision at night of a man from Macedonia pleading with him to come to help them. And so Paul and Silas, they understand that this is God speaking to them, that ultimately his spirit has something for them uh, when it comes to the gospel ministry. And we see that Luke joins him uh, and they set sail for Philippi. Now, I'm thankful at this point that Paul and Silas were obedient to the Holy Spirit. And for me, this is just a beautiful picture of what ministry is to look like. You look at where God's spirit is working and you follow him. Uh, in fact, when, when my wife and I were praying about coming to this church, one of the clear things that I saw uh, in prayer is that God's Spirit's working here in Cumberland. And what a joy it is to just be a part of what God is doing. And Paul and Silas, as God speaks to them through this vision, and as he closes doors behind them, they understand that God has a destination for them in Macedonia. And the first place that they go to is the city of Philippi. Um, now, Philippi was what's called a Roman military colony. Uh, many of the officers in the Roman army, when they would retire, they would go to these kind of places. And so you can imagine that Philippi, because of all the influx of soldiers and, and Romans, even though it's a Greek city, um, would be very loyal to Caesar as Lord would be very loyal to the Roman government. It would be a very patriotic city. And when you have a, a group of people who we're going to see declare Jesus as Lord, that creates a little bit of a conflict. And so it's a Roman military colony. It's also a major highway that connected Asia Minor uh, from Rome. And so you would have lots of travel in Philippi, people coming and going. Uh, in some ways, though, this is a much different environment. Cumberland is part of the tri-state area, and since we've been coming here, I've noticed vehicles from West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Maryland, of course. Because of where this city is located, you have people from different areas all coming through Cumberland, for better or for worse sometimes. Um, and so Philippi is a place of travel. It's busy. It's also a Greek city with Roman influence. It would have been Latin and Greek language spoken in the city. And so Paul and Silas and Luke, who joined them, come to Philippi. And we don't know what they did for the first couple of days, but assumingly they found where prayer was being offered because they go outside the city on the Sabbath and they find a group of women who are praying to the Lord and worshiping the Lord in the knowledge that they had of him. There must not have been very many Jewish men because if there were, they would have been a synagogue where they most likely would have attended. Um, and so they find these ladies, and one of them we find is Lydia. 
And Lydia is from Thyatira, and, and she was a worshiper of the Lord. The text says that the Lord actually opened her heart as Paul began to share Christ with these ladies who were there for prayer. God opens her heart. She believes on the Lord, and she actually welcomes those guys into her home. And thus, we have the beginning of the church of Philippi with a group of women who were meeting for prayer. Um, you also, if you've read Acts, remember that it was in Philippi that there was a girl who was demon-possessed who would follow Paul wherever they went, proclaiming uh, that these men were servants of the Most High God and also stating that they had the way of salvation. And I find that interesting that a demon-possessed girl, even though she was an annoyance and even though she was obviously a mess, you might say a hot mess, right? She proclaimed actually the truth. But it got to a point where Paul gets annoyed by this, and he casts out the spirit from this girl. Now, the problem, though, is this girl's a slave. And her master used this girl to make money because she was what we would say a fortune teller. And so as the demon leaves, so goes the income. And as the money goes, so goes many things. And this man gets upset. He has uh, Paul and Silas go to the marketplace to stand before the authorities there, and they end up beating them with many stripes, it says, and then they were cast into jail. And this type of jail, they were in the inner, inner part of the jail, would have been a very dreary place to be. Think of a dungeon, dark, wet, rats. And the noises, imagine the noises that, that the, the people would be making. I mean, I've, I've been in jails and in prisons before. Usually there aren't the nicest things coming out of people's mouths in those places, right? Whether they be the inmates or whether they be the, the officers, usually it's pretty crude. And yet at midnight, we see in Acts that as they are there, and by the way, their, their feet were chained to stocks. Many people believe they would have been spread eagle in this environment, and yet at midnight we see Paul and Silas catching a glimpse of the Lord, praising him, worshiping him. You know, it's one thing to come into the place like this and worship the Lord. It's easy to, <laughs> but their, their feet are in stocks and they're praising the Lord at midnight, and you can just imagine as these inmates are hearing them worshiping God, what that must have done to their hearts. Because here's what's interesting. As they're worshiping the Lord, we know that the earthquake comes. I heard Joe Foch say that God liked what he was hearing. He started tapping his foot. And as he tapped his foot, the earthquake came. I thought that was kind of funny. Um, and as the, the earthquake comes, they're loosed. Their doors open. And the jailer who was there, because he understood if these guys escape, he's going to be executed. He, he gets ready to take his own life. And then Paul stops him. But one thing that interests me is the fact that Paul says, wait a minute, wait a minute, we're all here. That somehow even the inmates whose cells were opened didn't go anywhere. That they understood, I think, something supernatural just took place. This wasn't just your ordinary earthquake. Chains just don't fall to the ground without some type of miracle happening. And so it becomes an opportunity now for Paul to share the gospel with this jailer, and then we see all of his household comes to faith in Christ. And so as you look at this church in Philippi, very neat makeup. You have Lydia, who most likely was very well off financially, 
you have the jailer who you would say is kind of middle class, has a house, has a family, working hard to provide for them. And then you have a slave girl who was formerly demon-possessed. And it's from this diverse group of people that God will raise up a church here in Philippi. And now as we get to our text, it's 10 years later or so, roughly 10 to 12, 13 years later, uh, Paul is going to write from prison himself. Because what happened, remember when Paul was getting this this, uh, collection together to take to the saints in Jerusalem, he gets to Jerusalem, he's met there with resistance, he's sent to Caesarea where he'll spend two years in jail until he finally appeals to Caesar. And so he appeals to Caesar, he's sent to Rome on house arrest, and that's where the book of Acts ends. And it's most likely from that house arrest period that he's writing this letter to the Philippians. And the reason why he's writing this letter is because somehow they caught wind of it and they send him financial, uh, they send him some, some money to help with his situation, which have been, would have been very important because back then you needed people to provide for your needs when you were in jail. They didn't just provide you with those things. You needed family. You needed friends. That's why all throughout the scriptures we're exhorted to remember those who are in chains, remember those who are in jail, your brothers and sisters. We need to not only pray for them, but provide for them practically. And so this Philippian church, on many, many occasions, maybe four or five occasions, have already helped Paul financially. And they find out that he's in jail. They send him money um, through one of the brothers, Uh, Epaphroditus. And at some point when Epaphroditus is bringing this collection to Paul, he falls ill. In fact, to the point almost of death. But God has mercy on him. He gets the money to Paul. And now Paul, as a way of thanksgiving, is going to send this letter back to Philippi. So if you want to think of it this way, this letter is kind of a thank you note but not your traditional thank you note. You know, when I write a thank you note, I look for something very simple, to the point, thank you, God bless, and boom, signature. Uh, Paul, of course, is very long-winded, isn't he? But for good reason. Um, And so it's a thank you letter, and and, and it's very similar if you've ever received a, a letter from a missionary that you're supporting. A lot of times those letters, number one, they do thank you for your support of the gospel, but they also share with you what's going on in the ministry. And Paul's going to do that for us in this letter. Uh, They also share their needs. Many times missionaries have dramatic needs. Sometimes simple things. Undershirts, toilet paper, necessities, right? And so Paul's going to let them know what's going on in his life. But he takes it a step further. Because as the founder of this church, as the founding father of this church, he's going to write to them, warning them against false teachers, Now, we'll see. It doesn't seem like the false teachers have infiltrated this church like they had some. He's also going to encourage them as they face persecution. Because remember, when you say Jesus is Lord versus Caesar is Lord, that creates a conflict. And number three, there does seem to be conflict in this church between it names two women we'll see later on. Uh, What that conflict is, it doesn't say. I believe there was selfish ambition involved because we'll see in chapter 2 that he warns us not to do anything from selfish ambition or conceit, to think of ourselves lowly as Christ. So there was a little bit of friction, but it doesn't seem to have gotten very far. And that's the point. You know, have you ever experienced in your life that little things become big things? That... When there's little roads of sin, when there's little compromises, those sins 
Those compromises ultimately lead to bigger compromises. And so I believe Paul is going to try to bring these people together in unity to try to squash what the enemy wants to divide because God's up to a great work here in Philippi, just as he is in Cumberland. And so let's get to our text now, just to, now that we have a little bit of a background. Uh, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ. Notice that it's Paul and Timothy. This is rare. Usually it's just Paul writing these letters. Uh, a lot of scholars believe that Timothy was perhaps uh, a secretary because throughout the text, it's, he speaks in the singular. He speaks just of himself. He doesn't say we. And so most likely, Timothy is there. He's recording what Paul is writing to this church in Philippi. And also, Timothy was very familiar with this church. As, he, as Paul and Timothy write this letter to them, no doubt their hearts would be warmed as they remember both Paul and Timothy. And notice how they describe themselves. In many of Paul's letters, he opens up saying, Paul, an apostle, by the will of God. And, and many times in those churches that he does so, there's conflict. There's people trying to dissuade the church from following after Paul. But it's not the case here, is it? Because he refers to himself as how? As bondservants, as doulos. The word literally could mean slaves of Jesus Christ. And oftentimes it referred to one who was actually born in slavery. You know, Paul at one point was born into slavery of sin, wasn't he? Just as every single one of us were born into the slavery of sin. We, don't re we didn't realize it, but that's who we were when we were born. We didn't think anything of it. Like I said, I think it was last week. I never had to teach my children to do wrong. From a very early age, they learned or they knew innately how to do wrong. And so we were all born in sin, just as Paul. But yet when he was born again, we know now he's born a slave of Christ. That's how he saw himself. Another interesting thing about this form of slavery is that the only way to break this form of slavery was usually death. And so we understand that when Jesus died on the cross, Paul died with him. Therefore, he was free as a slave of sin. And because Jesus will never die again, he is forever related to the Lord. And very similar for us. When, when Jesus died on that cross, you died with him if you're a believer in Jesus. Your old person died with Christ. You're no longer a slave of sin. That's one of the greatest truths of the gospel. Yes, we're going to heaven one day. Yes, we wait for the glory that is awaiting us. But we are no longer slaves of sin. And also, the slave's will was bound by the will of his master. In other words, the, before Christ, we know our will was bent on sin, but in Christ now, Paul was determined to follow his will, even if it meant death. So as Paul's writing this letter, who's this letter really from? It's from the Lord. And as Paul, it's a very affectionate letter. You're going to see him really express himself emotionally in this letter. I believe it's God's heart for his church. Because Paul's merely a slave. And slaves are merely after fulfilling the will of their master. The question, though, I think we always have to ask ourselves is, whose master am I? Am I trying to be my own master, my own king? 
which I know in my own life only leads to bad things and bondage of other kinds, or am I willingly a slave of Jesus Christ? I've learned that it's much better to be a free man in Christ as a slave than a free man in the world as a slave to sin. You know, if anything, many people struggle to turn to Christ because they're afraid Jesus is going to take away their freedom. Anyone ever go through that battle in your inner self? But what I learned when I turned to Christ, he actually gives us something called self-control. Because in Galatians, it tells us that's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And so God wants to give us self-control. It's not that he takes it away. He doesn't make us into these robots where we, we just do things without our consent. No, demons do that. The slave girl that, that Paul uh, ejected that demon from, cast out that spirit, she was in bondage in that way. But a slave of Jesus Christ is free. Free to serve the Lord, free to serve others. Now, one thing I, I do want to point out, though, is that this is how Paul saw himself. This is what he thought of himself. And I believe a theme of Philippians is this. How we think of God, ourselves, and others determines our response to situations. I'll say that one more time. How we think of God, ourselves, and others determines our response to situations. See, because Paul saw himself as a slave of Jesus Christ, he was able to face his Roman imprisonment with great joy. Because there's going to be themes in Philippians. One is think or thoughts. One is joy. And one is suffering. And you think, how do these things go together? Thinking, suffering, joy. And it becomes very clear as how we perceive the Lord and ourselves and others directly impacts how we think about our present situation, which allows us to experience joy even in the midst of suffering. And that's what I believe separates us as Christians apart from the world. The world rejoices when suffering ends. It's not that we enjoy suffering, but we can have joy in the midst of it. And Paul, I believe, is going to teach us about that. Now, notice who he refers to here, how he describes the church in Philippi. He says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with bishops and deacons. How does he describe these Christians? What word does he use to describe them? I find it interesting that he uses the word saints. Now, he does use this in many of his letters, but when I first came across this as a new believer, I thought that was a little bit weird because I'm used to the saints, capital S, super Christians, martyrs, people who live lives that I've never lived before as a Christian, who never struggle with sin, who just live perfect godly lives, right? Giving everything they have to the poor type of saint. Or I thought of people like... St. Paul, right? St. Peter, men who God used mightily in times past. But is that how God uses this term? No. He actually calls these Christians saints. And it, it literally means that they are holy, they are consecrated, they are set apart. These Christians have been set apart from the world and from the ways of the world for Christ, for his purposes. And again, it's not anything in and of themselves. Notice that they are saints in who? They're saints in Christ Jesus. In other words, you ain't no saint left to yourself. God is not saying, oh, I know how good you are. You are such a good person. 
No, he knows what he was getting when he sent his son to die on the cross for us. He understands that we are sinners in our old nature. But in Christ, we have a new identity. Amen? We're not who we used to be. We have a new identity in him. And, and this is so important because I believe you will live from your identity. Who you believe you are will determine what you do, largely. If you grew up and your parents told you you would never amount to anything, you're this, you're that, I wish you were never born, that has an impact on you. And not for the good. And I've, I've sat across too many people through the years who've had that happen to them. And we have to relearn those things, don't we? We have to understand who we are in Christ. Because who we are affects what we do. And let me just give you a quick example. Um, a letter very different from this letter. The, the letter of 1 Corinthians. You know, that letter is mostly a letter of rebuke, isn't it? And Paul has to deal with all kinds of chaos within the church in Corinth. There's people fighting amongst one another. There's uh, people taking one another to court. There's a guy sleeping with his stepmother. They're possibly sleeping with prostitutes. Um, you name it, it's going on. They're abusing the Lord's Supper. It's not a very pretty picture. Yet when you look at the beginning of Corinthians, how does Paul first address those Christians? He calls them saints. And, and I think that here's the important fact. He's reminding them of who they are in Christ. And he's saying, because of this is who you are, now live from that identity. God says you're a saint. You're holy. You're set apart. Now live that way. Be holy. Why? Because I am holy, says the Lord. And so this is the identity that Paul and ultimately the Lord see these Christians to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons probably church leadership, where they literally title bishops and deacons. Scholars kind of differ on that, on, a, on the opinion. I think what's important is the words themselves. The word bishop means overseer, and the word deacon means servant. And I think what's emphasized here is not who they are, but what they do. An overseer oversees people. An overseer cares about people. They care about the flock. And a deacon serves. It's, it's what they do from their heart, right? You know, I get concerned when I see people always wanting titles. You ever meet a Christian who just wants a title? Very dangerous. And I think this letter is going to address the Christian who wants a title because we're not to do anything for selfish ambition or conceit. And so if, when you're looking for a deacon, you're looking for someone who's already serving. They're already doing it. Why? Because it's who they are. It's what God has placed in their heart. And this is who Paul's writing to. Verse 2 Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm pretty sure that you've heard this probably many, many times in this congregation. That this is obviously a very standard way that Paul will open his letters. Notice it's always grace and then peace. It's never peace, then grace. Because we understand until you experience the grace of God, you will never have, first of all, peace of God or peace with God and then peace of God. And so he's reminding us already of what God has done in our life. And notice who it's from. Who, who wants to give us grace and peace? Is it Paul? Notice it's grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Lord's desire for us, that we may experience his grace in our lives and his peace in our lives. And so he begins now, he's going to break out in prayer. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, 
always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy. Notice Paul's demeanor. Every time he thinks he prays about these particular Christians, immediately there's this thanksgiving and joy that wells up from within him. These believers have meant something very near and dear to Paul. The first thing that comes to his mind is not the problems that they're creating. It's joy. It's thanksgiving because of their, what they've done with and through him and for him in Christ. You know, isn't it true that God puts people into our life? Is there people in your life, Christians, who every time you think of them, all of a sudden there's this joy in your heart. There's this thanksgiving because God placed those people strategically in your life so that you might know him, so that you might walk with him. There were people praying for you before you came to Christ. There were people speaking to you. There were people you wronged and never took retaliation against you. Why? Because they wanted you to see the one who is greater than all. They wanted you to see this Lord Jesus who Paul now represents. And I thank the Lord for that. I thank him as I think about the people he's used in my life to reveal Jesus Christ to me. Now, why is this Paul's attitude? Why is he so filled with joy for these Christians? Notice in verse 5, he's going to remind them, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. And so he speaks of this fellowship that he's experienced with these Christians. And the word fellowship, we often know this word koinonia. We speak of it as meaning oneness or to have all things in common, but not so much what it means here. Here it probably means partnership. That this church in particular, on at least four occasions, has partnered with Paul for the furtherance of the gospel. And they've had this fellowship together as they've served the Lord together in the gospel that has brought them oneness or unity. And so they, they, I believe this fellowship speaks of probably three things. Number one, of course, the financial support. And Paul was very clear to acknowledge that it was not so much for him, it was for the furtherance of the gospel. Number two, I believe that these Philippians also share, share the gospel themselves. Because all we know is a couple people at the beginning of this church. We don't know how big this church is at this point, but if they have bishops and deacons, it's probably an established church by now. It's been 10 years. And so these Philippians are sharing their faith in Christ. And three, just as they're sharing their faith in Christ as Paul is, I believe they're probably also going to be sharing in suffering. Because again, as they declare Jesus as Lord, that's not going to be met well in this city. And so they're sharing, there's this fellowship, there's this camaraderie that he has experienced with this group of believers. And it's a bond that has been united with time, with him and them. And he's also thankful because, notice verse 6, he's confident, what he's seen has made him confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. How many of you have held on to that verse at one point or another in your life? How many of you, when you start looking at yourself, you really need to look at this verse? Because you realize, boy, I have a long way to go. 
I am not who Jesus wants me to be. Thank God I'm not who I used to be, but I'm not where I want to be either, right? And as Paul's remembering these Christians, notice he doesn't have confidence in them, even though they've been a blessing in his life. Even though they provided for his needs practically, his confidence is in the Lord. That what the Lord began, he's going to complete. And I would just encourage you, let your confidence, all your confidence be in the Lord. If you put any confidence in the flesh, whether it be yourself or others, you will be destroyed. Because you will let yourself down and others will let you down. You know, it, it breaks my heart to see so many people elevating. We, we kind of have a celebrity Christian culture. And recently we've seen Christians abandon the faith. And many people are just taken aback by it because I think, you know, we, we put too much stock in, in individuals and personalities. You know, let our confidence be in the Lord, that he is faithful, that he will always do his part, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it till that day. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains, meaning when he's in prison, and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. And so we see here Paul's heart for these believers, don't we? The believers share their resources with Paul, both when he was active sharing the gospel and when he was imprisoned. And they didn't even realize it. We're going to see this next week. Even though they provided for Paul right now while he's in his chains, he's still sharing the gospel. See, they think they're just providing for his needs while he's in prison. But for Paul, prison meant opportunity. Opportunity to share Christ with whoever it is, even if it's the person who's chained to him. I guarantee you he's sitting there next to that Roman soldier who's chained to him, and he's just telling that person about Christ. And that guy can't get away. Right? You have a captive audience in jail. And so we see his heart here begin to just unfold for these Christians. I have you in my heart. Verse 8. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you with all the affection, or all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Remember, Paul is God's doulos, his slave. His will is meshed with the Father's will at this point. And he has, he can say this honestly, God is his witness. As I think of you, it's as if Jesus himself is, is in me loving you. You know, isn't this our need for one another? Can we say this about one another, even in this room? That as I look and I think about my brother or my sister in Christ, I have the same affection that Christ has for this person. God help us to love one another with this kind of sincerity and truth as we're going to see. And notice he says here that he, he, he longs for you all. You'll notice if you study the first couple chapters, he says you all quite a bit. In other words, he doesn't just long for the ones who are doing well. He longs for everyone, even the couple women who are troublemakers. And I believe because of his heart, he's calling them to unity amongst themselves. Because it's God's heart to be united in Christ. Verse 9, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more 
and more in the knowledge and all discernment. Isn't that a beautiful prayer? That your love may abound more and more. Even though there's love in this church, it's clear. Again, it's not a corrective letter by, by most parts. Yet as he meditates and thinks about this church, prays for this church, ultimately I believe being inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this letter, God is after our hearts to have more and more and more and more a love for one another and for him. It doesn't specify here whether it's love for the Lord or love for others. It just says, let love abound more and more and more, right? And this is God's love that he wants to pour into our hearts for one another. This is not our human, feeble, selfish, I give you, you give me back something love. This is not just, I love you, waiting for you to say I love you back. And that's what we usually do. This is, I love you despite who you are. This is, I love you without anything in return. It's a totally selfless, selfless, self-sacrificial love. And it's that type of love that Paul prays would continue to abound more and more. Can you imagine a church fellowship where the love of Jesus Christ kept abounding more and more and more and more. We didn't rely on yesterday's love. We didn't rely on yesterday's things that we did. And this kind of love works itself out, by the way. It's a practical love. It's not going around to people and saying, oh, I love you. I mean, you can do that. Just be careful who you say it to and how you say it, right? But there's nothing wrong with telling someone that you love them. But this type of love is demonstrated Jesus didn't go around telling people, oh, I love you, brother. You, you're, you're just so special to me, you know. When I think of you, I get warm fuzzies in my heart. And what does the word say? Greater love has no one than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. But God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Almost every time in the New Testament, you see it referring to the love of God. It's pointing to that work on the cross. Because he shows us that he loves us. He demonstrates that he loves us. And it's an action. And it would cause us as Christians to be motivated with the very love that motivated the Father and the Son in our work of redemption. Can you imagine our fellowship if we'd be praying this prayer every morning? Lord, will you let your love just abound more and more in our hearts for one another and for those that you've put in our life? Help us to be sacrificial, Lord, in our life, to be slaves, doulos, having our will united with your will, Lord. That, Father, we won't be looking for climbing the ladder of church status. We won't care about terms or titles. We're just here to know Christ and to make him known amongst one another. And in how we do that is we speak the truth in love. We love our brother and our sister in sincerity. And so I pray that your love may still abound more and more. Notice in knowledge and in all discernment. It's, it's a thinking love. It's a discerning love. It's, it's not knowledge in and of itself, right? Because knowledge puffs up, we know, but love edifies. So it, it, it's a combination of both. It's not naive love either. It's not foolish love, but it's real love that's able to discern what people actually need. 
versus maybe what they want, right? Anyone who's ever worked in any kind of addiction ministry knows that there's a very big difference between what we want and what we need. In fact, you don't even have to know about addiction to know that. And sometimes, I think as Christians, we enable people because we love uh, and we're not wise with our love. We, we can actually hurt people at times if we don't have discernment in what love is and what love means. And so as Christians, our love needs to be smart. There has to be knowledge attached to it and also discernment. That Why? That you may approve the things that are excellent. And that word means superior. In other words, that you may know the things that matter. So as you love one another, you're able to discern what really matters in this person's life. What, what they need versus maybe what they want. What they need to hear, because you know, sometimes love causes us to speak a difficult truth to people, doesn't it? Jesus loved the Pharisees. And yet he, he was pretty harsh at times. James loved the Jewish Christians that he wrote to. And yet if you've read the book of James, he doesn't pull any punches. So this type of love gives us this discernment that allows us to see what is most needed. It's excellent. It's on point. It's beneficial. And it shows us what's good versus what's best. And that's what God wants. He wants us to use us for the best of those in our lives. That you may be sincere. That word means unmixed or pure. It means having a right motive, right? We're motivated with the right mind of Christ in what we do. And without offense. In other words, you're not going to make your brother stumble. God forbid that you would make someone stumble for whom Christ died and shed his blood. Till the day of Christ, and, and it really literally could be for the day of Christ. It's speaking of when he's revealed to all of creation at his second coming. And the point is, this is where we're heading. This is where God is bringing us as Christians. We, everything in this world is heading for this one day when Jesus Christ is revealed. And in that day, he reveals his children to the world, which all of creation we know is groaning and waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. And as, as we wait for this future event in the present, because what you do presently determines things for eternity in Christ as Christians, not heaven or hell as a Christian, but rewards. And what we do for him matters today, here and now, just as it did for this church in Philippi. And he wants these Christians to be reminded, focus on what matters most. Love people. More and more and more. Love one another. Focus on those things. Because at the end of the day, when you're on your deathbed and when I'm on my deathbed, I promise you, you're not going to care about, boy, I wish I would have earned a little bit more money. Boy, I wish I would have bought a nicer house. Ah, I wish I would have had those designer clothes. No, it always comes down to relationships, doesn't it? I wish I would have spent more time with. I wish I would have told him this. I wish I would have let him know how much I really love him. That's what matters most. And 
finally being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. You're not going to love in your own strength, I promise you. You'll last for a day, maybe if you're really good in the flesh a week. But your love is very fickle and feeble and selfish and everything else. But that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit of God so that the fruits of righteousness would be revealed in our life. And one of those fruits we know is love. Another one of those fruit is joy. And that's what God wants to do in and through us, which are, of course, by Jesus Christ. It's not of you, it's of him. Why? To the glory and praise of God that everything that we do that has any kind of eternal significance, any act of love as Christians that we accomplish is because of him and to him and for him. And this is Paul's prayer for this church. In Philippi, this is God's prayer for us as a church, is that we would focus on the things that matter. How are you praying for your brothers and sisters in Christ? I would encourage you Go through this text of scripture and begin praying over this for you and for us and for all that God will bring into this fellowship. I would pray as people come into this church, they would experience the love of God like never before. Let's pray. Father, we we praise you and we thank you for your word. Lord, so often we fall so short of what you desire to do in our hearts and in our lives, Lord. We get distracted and off course. Father, I pray that you'd help us to turn around, Lord, to repent if that's necessary. If there's things in our minds and in our hearts towards our brothers and sisters that are not pleasing to you, would you convict us of those things? If there's anything keeping us, Lord, from surrendering to you, I pray that you'd give us the faith to see you rightly, Lord, that we would understand who it is that we surrender to, that we would gladly, gladly become a slave of you, Lord, because you offer us so much better than what we have ever experienced, Lord. You desire to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think, Lord. You desire your love to abound in our hearts more and more, Lord. And I pray that over this church that your love would abound, Father, that you would demonstrate that in practical means, Lord, Move on our hearts to care about one another, to love one another, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.